to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks so much for listening. It's our sixth episode. Super exciting. Uh, How are you doing today, Ben? It's been a bit of a day, Sarah. We've had an exciting and trying day, I think. Yeah. Uh, I was cleaning my fish's bowl and while fish, uh, the fish is named Fish. While Fish was in his temporary bowl, he decided to jump out, and I don't know how long he was on the counter for, but I put him back in the bowl, and he seems to be doing okay, but I kind of freaked out. Yeah, it was, it was a bit of a, uh, a trying experience, but, uh, you were a fish hero, and restored him to his home, and he seems to be fine now, uh, but it certainly put you on edge for a while. Yep. (laughs) Besides our fish story, doing well? Yeah, I think I think we're uh, we're doing pretty good. Yeah, that's great. Uh, what movie are we watching today? Well, I think you'll be excited to know that we are watching our third adaptation of Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde for this podcast. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> this is the first feature film length adaptation uh, of Jekyll and Hyde. And it's from 1920. Cool. So this is one that I have not seen, because the one that I have seen is the adaptation after this. Yeah, it's the one with Frederick March, is Mm. the one that you're familiar with. Yes. So um, we didn't talk a ton about Jekyll and Hyde when we watched the short versions. I mean, we did, you know, discuss it a little bit. But um, since this is a feature film and the whole episode's going to be about it, I thought... Maybe we could chat a bit about our experience with the subject matter. So, have you ever read the original novel, Sarah? I have not. So, I've read... I have. <laughs> um, I've, I've kind of read it twice. When I was a small child, I had a version, like an, a, a severely abridged version of Jekyll and Hyde. The, the Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson. I had a very, very abridged version for children that was part of, like, the Wishbone, like, oh. book series. Wishbone had a book series? Yeah, well, they had the show. They had a TV show. Yeah, so they had the show. The book series was, like, not really like a... Like, it wasn't about Wishbone. It wasn't like the show was. It was just, like, classic novels, the kind that they would adapt on the show, abridged uh, and made simple to read for children. And then, like, the Wishbone character kind of providing, like, running commentary to, like, explain things through the book. <laughs> cool. Did, the, did they ever do a TV show, like, an episode on the TV show? Of Jekyll and I probably, but I don't, I don't remember many specific Wishbone episodes anymore. That was a long time ago. I remember the one, I forget what it's based off of, but it's the guy who falls asleep and is asleep for a very long time and wakes up with a very long beard. That's Rip Van Winkle. Uh, and Wishbone, the dog, was the dude with the beard. Mm-hmm. And then I remember the Robin Hood episode. I remember the Phantom of the Opera episode, yeah. which bothered me because it, it actually doesn't follow the book. Okay. Like, for the whole point of Wishbone being like, oh, literacy, like, the version of the story that they told followed, like, the 1940s, like, movie version of Phantom of the Opera. (laughs) Um, And then the other episode I remember, I don't remember what book they were doing that week, but it was, like, 
the normal world plot was that, like, the kid who owned Wishbone's dad was turning, like, 40 and having, like, a midlife crisis about being old or something. <laughs> that was the other one I remember. I totally forgot that there was other parts to that show. I just remembered the dog no. being character. Yeah, it was like, there was, like, a every episode had, like, a real-world plot that was intercut with, like, the Wishbone plot where he would be reading a book and imagining he was in the book, which, like... <laughs> Now that I think about it, like, why is there a show about a dog who reads books? Welcome to our story about our Canadian childhood, listeners, because I'm pretty sure <laughs> Wishbone only aired in Canada. I'm pretty sure it was, like, a YTV-only thing. I think if you oh. grew up in, like, South Carolina, you're probably not going to understand what the hell Wishbone was at all. Do yourself a YouTube search and see what the heck we're talking about. Yeah, and uh, tell us on Twitter or on in the comments for the for the show... Uh, what you think of Wishbone. <laughs> Let's hear your favorite Wishbone episode. <laughs> okay, so, um, yeah, so I read this Wishbone version when I was a kid. Um, as an adult, I read the actual book. I took it out from the library because I was directing a thriller about a criminal with multiple personality disorders. So I decided to read Jekyll and Hyde as kind of like um, thematic research because Jekyll and Hyde sort of the first of that kind of story, I would say. Mm. Um, so I read the novel, and uh, so that's sort of where my experience with Jekyll and Hyde comes from. Yeah, I, I do feel like even if someone hasn't seen any of the film adaptations, stage plays, or ha have read the book, it's like this cultural knowledge mm. that everyone seems to know. Two sides to every person, a Jekyll and a Hyde version, mm -hmm. one good, one bad. Like, it's very... It's steeped within our cultural memory. That's very true. It's it's definitely become, you know, um, mimetic for good and evil, Jekyll mm. and Hyde, right? So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in preparation for this episode, um, I did a little bit of research about the author, some of the inspiration for the novel, and then also just what the differences are between the novel and the stage play, which was kind of odd since I have no experience with either of those two things. But that's the internet. Mm -hmm. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, or rather the novella's name is Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, was written by Robert Louis Stevenson in 1886. There's a ton of chatter on the internet about where the inspiration for this novella came from, but I'll kind of like list through some of the stuff. Okay. So I guess Stevenson had written some previous works dealing with similar themes, of good and evil choices and how people's personalities can uh, affect those choices. Okay. Which, like, saying that out loud, I know that that sounds like, well, that's just writing in general, but I, I guess it was, um, he had written some other things leading up to this that had similar themes like that. Gotcha. Uh, a friend of his, a French doctor named Eugene Chantrel, in 1878, poisoned and murdered his wife. Uh, which was, like, really upsetting to Stevenson. Sure, that, yeah, mm-hmm. If I had a friend who murdered his wife, I'd be upset. Yeah, so just, like, seeing a friend of yours who seemed like a really uh, kind person, was a doctor, clearly cared for humanity, being charged and convicted of murdering his wife, and then finding out that there were similar poisonings in, like, both Britain and France as a result of this guy, mm. um, I think that would have really 
affected someone into thinking about things in terms of Jekyll and Hyde and split decision-making, I guess? Sure. Or personas? In a previous episode, in our first episode, where we watched those adaptations of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Mm -hmm. especially talking about the King Baggett one, Mm -hmm. you had this analysis um, that included alcoholism, and uh, you mentioned how Robert Louis Stevenson's dad was an alcoholic, and that was an inspiration for the novel. Right. Uh, I couldn't find any evidence of that. Okay. So, retroactive... Fact check. (laughs) (laughs) I might have been speaking off the cuff in that regard then. uh, If I was incorrect, um, then let it stand that I have been corrected. (laughs) The most common inspiration that kept popping up is, I guess, Stevenson was having a dream, a nightmare about this kind of uh, story. Mm -hmm. And it goes that his wife, Fanny, woke him up and he got really angry. He's like, why did you wake me up? I was having, like, this really great horror story. And she's like, you were yelling in your sleep, dude. Right. Yeah, so that that was some of the inspiration behind this novel. When I read the book, um, I remember that a lot of the subtext of the novel seemed to be really just around... Victorian social norms, Hmm. that in Victorian English society, there was such a pressure to be proper Hmm. and to... Reputation was so important. You know, you had to have a clean and spotless reputation and all this kind of stuff. And that what the ideas that Stevenson seemed to be exploring in the novel were mostly the idea that He was questioning the idea that it's natural for man to repress Mm. uh, all of these desires and urges, which, like, Victorian culture was a very repressive culture. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, certainly men still went off and did all those things that uh, men do, but it was sort of something that you were supposed to keep hidden and keep locked away. And, you know, it seemed that what Jekyll and Hyde was exploring was the idea that is it more healthy to have an outlet to uh, actually explore those passions. Mm -hmm. Um, So the the tie between the way that the novel was exploring morality with the way that Victorian culture expressed morality as sort of this repressive, prim and proper social norms kind of thing. Yeah, I think... Even though that this film was written in Victorian times and you explained very well how the culture of that day was very repressive, I think those feelings of going with social norms or not mm-hmm. continue even to this day. For sure, absolutely. I think that, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons why it's sort of still a very universal story. I do think it's interesting, though, that that's the framework that it frames good and evil in, mm-hmm. is social is that good is socially accepted and evil is not, which I, I, I don't know if I agree with that, but uh, that's the tack that the, the novel took. In doing some of this research about Stevenson, I did come across his reactions to how people perceived his novel. Okay. A patient in, uh, I guess, an, a mental asylum mm-hmm. who was suffering from um, multiple personality disorder wrote to Stevenson about the novel and Stevenson like, politely replied, um, but disagreed with the similarities between Jekyll and Hyde and multiple personalities. Okay. Um, which I thought was interesting, yeah, because you always see Jekyll and Hyde as, like, the example. Sure, yeah, yeah. Stevenson didn't like depictions of Hyde as a sexual deviant and Jekyll as pure, and this really comes... That's interesting. Yeah, it really comes out of uh, his reaction to this 
um, very first stage adaptation by Thomas R. Sullivan in 1887, who really emphasized the moral differences between Hyde mm-hmm. and Jekyll. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in this letter to a New York Sun editor in 1887, Stevenson wrote, Hyde is no more sexual than any other. When you've seen a lot of movie versions of Jekyll and Hyde, reading the novel can be very interesting because mm-hmm. it's structured in a way that you could never do in an adaptation now. The novel's structured as a mystery in that you do not know that Jekyll and Hyde are the same dude. Like, the novel has the same twist ending as Fight Club, where you (laughs) discover that they're the same guy. The novel's told from the point of view of this friend of Jekyll's, and Jekyll isn't presented as a paragon of virtue. He's presented as just a scientist who's doing research into, you know, is there a physical cause for morality and and so on. This novel friend meets Hyde, who is presented as a friend of Jekyll's and is like just a massive asshole. (laughs) And this friend is like, how can Jekyll be friends with this guy? And Hyde goes off and he tramples a kid. And then just randomly one night, he just beats an old man to death with a cane. And the old man that he murders, he's like presented as more of a Like, ah, a highly respected member of society, this paragon. Yeah, because he was an MP. Right, Uh, exactly. And, you know, and then eventually, like, you know, uh, things are closing in for Jekyll. One of the problems that he has is that he can't control the transformations at a certain point. He's running out of the serum to do so. He's transforming when he doesn't mean to. And the twist ending is this friend of Jekyll's being told to bring all this stuff to Hyde because he doesn't have enough of the serum to change back anymore. And he changes back from Hyde to Jekyll in front of him and, like, explains the whole thing and whatnot. But it's, like, it's a twist ending. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, there isn't this, you know, there isn't any of this kind of purity versus sexual deviancy thing, which, um, do you want to sort of cover how the play changes the plot? Yeah, so the play, the first play adaptation was 1887. I mentioned how it was a project of Thomas R. Sullivan, um, but it starred a guy named Richard Mansfield. So it debuted in Boston, 1887, uh, later went on to Broadway, was a huge hit. Mm-hmm. When it appeared in London, uh, it was just before the Jack the Ripper murders. Yes, yes. And so because of Richard Mansfield's depiction of Jekyll and Hyde, he was actually considered a suspect for the murders because of that content. Yeah, because people, even to this day, have a hard time separating an actor from their roles and performances. Yeah. And as far as the differences between the play and the novel goes, the play introduced a new female character, which is the love interest Agnes Carew, daughter of Denver's Carew, uh, who is the man who gets beaten with the cane. Yeah. And then, yeah, the play also emphasized the moral differences between Jekyll and Hyde. With the book, Jekyll becomes Hyde permanently, Mm -hmm. um, and I guess the book ends, I bring the life of Jekyll to an end. Yeah, yeah, he kills himself. Uh, Oh, does he kill himself? Yeah. What I read was that in the book, that's just how it ends, and then in the play, um... Hyde commits suicide because he can't turn back. Yeah, he's he dies in the book, for sure. Okay. Um, because the friend who has the first-person narrative um, is, like, the executor of his will. Um, so the he last... he be the executor of Jekyll's will. Right. Not Hyde. It's in... So it's in Jekyll's final will and testament that he explains everything to the guy. 
and I believe that line about I bring the life of Jekyll to an end or whatever is the last line of his, like, will, s- will that this guy is, like, reading or whatever. That being said, it has been four years, five years since I read the book, but I do recall that it, he's, he's, he's not off as Hyde, free, he's dead. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, to be fair, I was only reading synopses online. Sure. Um, that is the interpretation I took from it, though, that he just lives as Hyde now. Mm-hmm. I haven't actually read the source material. Yeah. Like I said, I, I might be misremembering the book, um, but I'm pretty sure he's dead by the end of it. And then what's kind of interesting is from the play adaptation to this film adaptation, they added a, another female character, which is the, I guess, love interest of Hyde. Yes. Uh, for lack of a better word. Yes. The actresses in this film are uh, Martha Mansfield, playing Martha. Millicent Carew, uh, Jekyll's love interest, and Nita Naldi, playing Gina uh, Hyde's love interest. Mm-hmm. What I thought was interesting, because Richard Mansfield, who played Jekyll and Hyde in the play adaptation, he became so entrenched and tied to his portrayal mm-hmm. that like people had a hard time even like thinking of someone else in that role. So Martha Mansfield, despite having the same last name as Richard Mansfield, yeah. has no relation. Okay. Um, I guess she took the last name Mansfield because she was born in Mansfield, Ohio. Okay. But given that this is, like, one of her early film roles, and she's in Jekyll and Hyde, uh-huh. I wonder if she chose Mansfield as her last name to tie her to Richard Mansfield. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. I know that we talked, you know, I, I've heard stories about Richard Mansfield playing Jekyll and Hyde. There's a really famous double exposure photograph of him uh, showing him in both roles simultaneously. <laughs> and we sort of talked about this when we looked at the shorts for Jekyll and Hyde, that, like... What the play really did was make it so that the role of Jekyll and Hyde was, like, a big role for an actor to take. That it was seen as being, like, a very big challenge for an actor. Especially because actors of that time were expected to kind of do their own makeup and stuff like that, right? Mm -hmm. But it was, you know, a big deal if you were Jekyll and Hyde, right? This film version follows the story from the, the play, so it's got the love interests uh, that are brought in, as well as the pumped-up purity of Jekyll, which both of the shorts we saw did as well. They both used that same thing. Yeah. And I think, like a lot of these old horror novels, it's the stage play version that became more influential to the later films. Certainly that's true of Dracula and Frankenstein as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, with Dracula, I'm sure we'll talk about this when we do see Bela Lugosi and Dracula, but... The tie from the stage to film is very direct with the same dude playing the character. Very true. Yeah, so the film was directed by John S. Robertson, who was a Canadian director, and it was adapted to the screen by Clara Beringer, who was a contract screenwriter for Famous Players under Cecil B. DeMille, and uh, she wrote a ton of films through the silent era. Um, In fact, she became one of the original faculty for USC Film School uh, when that school opened in 1929 uh, and was, like, their main screenwriting teacher for, like, 30 years. Um, The film is an American studio picture. Uh, It's produced by famous players and distributed by Paramount uh, back in the early days of those organizations. It's sort of a little bit interesting to talk to uh, the early history of American studios So Famous Players was established as a theater company by a guy named Adolf Zucker in 1912. 
And right up until very recently, they had a chain of theaters in Canada. So they were founded in 1912. The film production studio, Lasky, was founded in 1913 by Jesse Lasky. Those two companies then merged in 1916 to become famous players Lasky, so they both made the films and then had the theaters to show them in, mm. uh, but they didn't have distribution, so they couldn't get from one place to the next. <laughs> so um, they signed a distribution deal with Paramount Pictures, uh, which was also brand new at the time. And once Famous Players Lasky had that distribution deal with Paramount, Adolf Zucker did some corporate finagling to merge all three companies into one company with him in control. Thus meaning that it was a vertically integrated company. So it produced the films, then distributed them to theaters that it owned. Which is why, if you recall, like the Famous Players Theaters in Canada, uh, like the one here in Calgary was the Paramount Chinook. Mm-hmm. That's why it was a Paramount Theater. Uh-huh. They're all the same company, or were anyways. Uh, what ended up happening in the 1950s was the Supreme Court ruled that that was uh, an illegal monopoly yeah. and that you had to not do that. <laughs> um, but funny enough, when Zucker took control of Paramount in 1917, he signed 22 big-name actors and actresses to Paramount and gave each of them a star around the mountain in the logo. Oh. And that's where the term movie stars comes from what yeah that's really cool yeah i thought so too i didn't know that uh and of course that's the logo that paramount still uses to this day so the biggest deal about this 1920 jekyll and hyde is that it stars john barrymore and it's hard to overstate what a big deal john barrymore was in 1920 john barrymore was known as the great profile because it was considered, like, from a profile view, that he was just, like, absurdly handsome. Uh, he was the top film and stage actor of the 1920s. Uh, you know, hugely well-regarded actor. He was from the prestigious Drew and Barrymore acting family. His stage career stretched from 1903 to 1925, uh, before he left the stage to act in films for the next 20 years. And unlike a lot of silent movie stars, he actually made the transition to sound film very well because he had had that stage background previously. He was born in 1882. His father was actor Maurice Barrymore. His mother was actress Georgie Drew. And his brother was actor Lionel Barrymore, and his sister was actress Ethel Barrymore. Everyone in this family acts. So are you saying that Drew Barrymore Mm -hmm. of current today film industry... Yeah. So this John Barrymore is our Drew Barrymore's grandfather or great-grandfather. I can't quite remember which. And then, yes, her two names, Drew Barrymore, are the family names of John Barrymore's mom and dad. All right. <laughs> and, uh, like, the Drew family was an acting family. The Barrymore family was an acting family. They got married and had John Barrymore. However, his mother died of tuberculosis when he was 11 years old. And because his father and his older siblings were always touring on stage, he was largely raised by his grandmother, actress Louisa Drew. In 1897, at the age of 15, his grandmother died. And he lost his virginity to his stepmother, his dad, Maurice Barrymore's second wife, who was much younger because he was a famous actor, so he married someone much younger than him. Gross with your stepmom? Yeah. This is, yeah. Uh, And his dad ended up going mad from syphilis in 1901. 
1901, John Barrymore is 19 years old. Uh, you know, he's having an affair with his stepmom. His dad's gone mad. His mom has died of TB, and his grandmother, who raised him, is dead. So his upbringing is troubled, to say the least. Mm-hmm. And so, strapped for cash and with nowhere to go, he, quote, finally succumbed to the family curse of acting, unquote, in his own words. Uh, initially, he gained very mixed reviews. He acted mostly in comedies, and critics complained that he was trying to imitate his grandfather, John Drew, and meanwhile, his alcoholism caused countless problems backstage. He was off to a very bad start as an actor. What changed his fortunes was playwright Edward Sheldon convinced him that he should do drama instead of comedy. So he starred in The Yellow Ticket in 1914 and Red Widow in 1915, and suddenly critics fell in love with him. They continued to praise him through being the lead in Peter Ibbotson in 1917 and Redemption in 1918 and The Jest in 1919. By this point, he was getting a reputation as one of the finest stage actors in America. So all he needed was a change of genre. And I think it makes sense why he didn't have a very good head for comedy, but perhaps was better at drama. I mean, there's people who have unique childhoods who go into comedy. Sure. And are really good at it. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, So it's at this point in 1919 that he takes the lead role in this film version of Jekyll and Hyde. Jekyll and Hyde was filmed in the daytime, while Barrymore rehearsed for his first Shakespearean role ever, Richard III, at night. Who was he, Richard III? He was Richard III, yeah. Uh, The play debuted in March of 1920 and won Barrymore effusive praise from critics. And then the film, Jekyll and Hyde, was released March 18th, so about the same time that the play finally came out. And it got similar praise, uh, particularly for Barrymore's appearance as Hyde. Um, Indeed, the transformation sequence in this film is done entirely without makeup or special effects. It's just Barrymore's performance. Oh, cool. Yeah. As for Barrymore's family, you know, having been born into this acting family, it bears mentioning that he was married four times. uh, The first time to actress and golfer Catherine Harris. The second time to actress, playwright, poet... Blanche Ulrichs, a.k.a. Michael Strange, which produced a daughter, actress Diana Barrymore, who married actor Bramwell Fletcher and later actor Robert Wilcox. John Barrymore's third marriage was to actress Dolores Costello, and they had two children, one of whom was actor John Drew Barrymore, who married actress Kara Williams and had the son John Blythe Barrymore, and later married uh, again and had a daughter, actress Drew Blythe Barrymore. And John Barrymore's fourth wife was actress Elaine Barry. So yeah, everyone in this family is an actor. I also appreciate but also recognize how frustrating it must have been that everyone has the same name or variation of the same name. (laughs) Like several people have the name John. Right. And, like, if if Blythe isn't your middle name, it's your first. Yeah. And if neither of those are it, it's Drew. Yeah. (laughs) And the Blythe comes from the fact that John Barrymore's father, Maurice Barrymore, was originally named Blythe and changed his name to Barrymore when he became an actor because he didn't want his family to be connected. Huh. So, yeah, it is just, like, the same, like, four or five names that get, like, repeated down in different combinations, but... I mean, I think that's common, 
Yes. At least back then. Like, it's a thing in my family where, like, there's at least one kid who has the mom or the dad's name as a middle name. Sure. So, uh, that's everything. I mean, John Barrymore went on after this movie to have a continually interesting and prolific life and was, you know, regarded as this amazing actor uh, after this film as well. But I thought I would just take us up in his life to the moment of making this film. Otherwise, we might be here all day. He had those four marriages before this film? No, 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 no. I was just mentioning the four marriages so I could mention all of his various actor descendants. Ah. Uh, no, I'm sorry. That was, He was only on marriage number two when he made this film. All right. So I know we have this movie on DVD, Mm -hmm. actually, but where can other people find this film? So this film's been released a couple of times on DVD. Uh, I think it even got a restored Blu-ray release. Because it's a 1920 film, it is in the public domain, however, and can be easily watched on YouTube. The key there is making sure you're seeing the John Barrymore film. There was another version of Jekyll and Hyde released in 1920, this same (laughs) year, to compete with this film by a rival studio for fears of copyright infringement they changed the setting to new york and changed various elements of the plot and had it be set in modern day times however that film is only in existence as about like a i think a 10 15 minute fragment now um there isn't a full film surviving anymore so if you do go on search Jekyll and Hyde 1920 onto YouTube, this is the one that's an hour and a half long. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Uh, well, folks, you're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and we will be right back after watching the film. All right, we'll see you guys then. Hope you guys enjoy it. watching Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1920, starring John Barrymore. Sarah, what did you think? So this is the third time we've seen this adaptation for this podcast, and I mean, it was better than the others, in my opinion, but I could still feel myself going like, okay, are we getting to this part yet? Are we, like, can we move through a little faster? Just kind of like twiddling my thumbs. I found that because, you know, this was a feature-length version, it's like every time we get closer to something resembling the Frederick March version, I just realized that I just want to be watching the Frederick March version. Yeah. it's, It's not really fair to compare this to that, but it's hard not to when you're watching it because they're very similar, except that the Frederick March version is superior in every single regard. Yeah. You know, and everything that doesn't quite work in this version works in that version you know it's like that version has had the time of all these previous adaptations (laughs) to figure out how to really do this story well and we're not quite there yet with this one do you think it's because these have all been silent movies and frederick march's is a talkie i don't think so i mean i think his version uses sound really well but i don't think that's inherent to making a good version of this story i think that this film and the two others before it have done a very poor job of motivating the action. Mm. Like, my biggest problem with this version is it does a really poor job of motivating Jekyll for why he would do any of this. 
Uh, I mean, it tries, but it's it doesn't do it well. Yeah, and whenever a movie is, like, using peer pressure as motivating factor, I roll my eyes so hard. They almost fall out. Well, it doesn't even work as a motivating factor, too. I mean, we can get into this maybe after we've given, like, a brief plot summary, but I will say that in the novel, you know, there's no love interest, right? Yeah. And Jekyll is middle-aged. And it's explicitly stated that his motivation for creating this potion and becoming Hyde is so that he can indulge in vices that would be unacceptable to a man of his position in society. Mm -hmm. And the novel actually is never explicit on what those vices are. The only crimes that were ever given with Jekyll is that he runs into a kid and, like, tramples a kid, and he murders uh, this MP uh, in, like, a fit of rage in the middle of the night. But, like, the explicit vices that Jekyll has created Hyde to go off and do are left unsaid. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, Jek- you know, but it's Jekyll's idea to, to do it. Let's, let's just give an overview of this v- particular version. I'm trying to, like, think of, like, what parts we need to emphasize that are different from the others. Mm-hmm. But they're all blurring together for okay. me at the moment. Let me just say the dad in this has a creep factor of 5,000. Like, okay, yeah. Creepy, so creepy in, dude. So in previous versions, like, they've made... It's it's interesting to see the evolution of the story, right? Because the character of Carew is in the novel. He's the old man that Jekyll... Sorry, that Hyde murders. And then, you know, when this got adapted into a play and then into films, he got turned into the father of Jekyll's fiance. And we've seen even a silent film version of this where he's like a minister. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's this paragon of society or whatever. In this version, you know, we've got the Jekyll as a paragon. We've got the Jekyll who runs the, the clinic for the poor and, and this sort of thing, which we've seen earlier. I think that was in the King Baggett version. It was, yeah. Um, and, you know, he's courting Millicent Carew. But in this version, like, her dad is just, like, he's, like, F. Murray Abraham as Salieri in Amadeus. Like, that's what he looks like, anyways, to me. (laughs) But, like, her dad is, like you said, like, this huge creep. Is, like, hitting on her friends. Right. Yeah, which is, like, your first hint. And then it's, like, so her dad doesn't like Jekyll because he's too good. Yeah. Because no man could be so saintly. Well, it's it's as if he's trying to encourage Jekyll to bring more balance into his life, which on the surface, like, maybe, but balance in the sense of, like, you're too good. You should indulge yourself. It's not a case of, like, picture of Dorian Gray, like, what (laughs) skeletons are in his closet. He's too good to be true. It's, no, you're too good. You need to indulge yourself. Yeah, the dad's like, listen, man, you, you're clearly, like, some sort of boring Puritan. Let's go out to, like, a music hall and get you, like, a hooker, which is, like, bizarre. Like, that doesn't make sense as a motivation to me when, like, this is the guy who's trying to, like, court your daughter. Like, I can sort of get that, like, oh, man, like, we need to teach you a sense of fun thing if this was, like... One of his guy friends. Right, exactly. If this was 40-year-old version starring Steve Carell. <laughs> but it's not. This is the guy... This is this is Meet the... This would be like if Robert De Niro's character in Meet the Parents was like, let's go out and get shit-faced with hookers. Like, it doesn't make sense. Why would you want the dude dating your daughter to be, like, a weird, shitty guy like you are? Yeah. Yeah, so he tries to, like, force this on Jekyll. And Jekyll's like, nah, dude, I'm not into it because I'm a good person. Mm -hmm. And then he goes home and he's like, 
well, if only there was a way that I could be terrible without it... Hurting my soul. Right, without going to hell, Yeah, basically. So that's why he makes Hyde. And to me, like, that doesn't work as a motivation because the whole point of the novel, you know, was that Hyde's created so that you could get away from the social pressures of Victorian society. And in this version, like, there is no social pressure because the dude who would judge you, her dad, is the one saying, let's go to strip clubs and take home hookers. Like, there's no reason to create an alternate identity for it. Okay, so my theory is both in the sense of, like, them trying to peer pressure Jekyll into being more like them, Mm -hmm. um, being one of the cool kids, let's say, but right before Jekyll drinks the potion, he thinks of, uh, his name was Sir George or something? Yeah, Sir George is the dad. He thought of the dad, and we know this because, like, his face got, like, superimposed in the screen or whatever, and then he drinks it, and Jekyll's whole idea of Hyde, or creating, like, these two different, uh, people, one good, one evil, comes from, like, he's saying things like, Sir George has forgotten about his soul. Uh, what if we can save our soul from sins by splitting good and evil into two separate bodies? So, to me, it seemed like he his motivating factor was, like, a selfless sacrifice to, like, help the dad and people like him. Okay, right. So the idea would be that you could use this as, like, a treatment for others or something. Yeah, which at least mm. ties it into, like, him having that clinic for the poor, um, yeah. One, like, pet peeve I have for all of these adaptations is as soon as it's not, like, relevant anymore, we stop thinking about that clinic for the poor. Sure. It's, like, the it's... entire time people are like, where's Jekyll? Uh, all we see is this Hyde character running around. I keep going, like, what about the poor, Jekyll? Yeah. Like, aren't you, like, still helping them? That's true. Like, the poor people clinic is always used in, like, the first act to just say that, like, Jekyll's a real stand-up guy. Yeah. But then after that, it's it's not important. I see where you're coming from with, like, that motivation of, like, oh, it could be used to, like, help these other people. But that's so... It's so weird to me because then that never really comes back into the plot. And, like, that's so divorced from novel Jekyll, too, who explicitly says he just did it for himself. Yeah. And, again, it's like I have a hard time not just thinking of the Frederick March version where his motivation for what he does is, like, so clear and is made so explicit, and is the film does such a good job in that version of, of making you understand why this guy's doing what he's doing. And, like, here, it's just confused. Like, you can tell that they're trying mm-hmm. to make it make sense, but it's, it's confused. Is part of that confusion the fact that the title cards have a loose understanding of grammar? Well, I don't know if it's, like, a loose understanding of grammar. They're definitely very purple prose. Yeah. Like... These are title cards that would, like, describe eating a sandwich as something like, as the blazing orb of our nearest star hangs in the zenith of the midday sky, uh, the wheat of the land is transformed into sustenance for man's own survival. Like, that's the tone of these title cards. And it's like, dude, he's just having a sandwich. Like, (laughs) ooh, yeah, it's, it's tough. Right, we were summarizing the film. So he becomes Hyde for the first time, and do we want to talk about the transformation sequence, the first one? Yeah, um, I mean, like, all the transformation sequences in this movie were pretty good. Mm -hmm. Um, I've noticed, especially in, like, the previous two, that the films would 
kind of shorthand the transformation sequences mm. so they wouldn't have to go through the same effort every time. Right. This one, like, they sort of did, but, like, they still were top-notch. I think before the break, we mentioned how Barry Moore didn't use any makeup or anything. I think he does. Well... Um, at least, like, you know, when he first... It's all one shot of when he starts, like, convulsing and transforming. And, like, you can see, like, through his expressions and stuff that, you know, he's transformed into, like, this hideous creature. Um, but then the next shot, there's a bit more accent on his face with makeup. Yeah, I think I think you're right. Like, I think... One of the things this film does is every time he transforms to hide, the makeup's a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, and we see that we've seen that in other versions. We'll see that in future versions. That's sort of a common mm-hmm. technique. And the first time he transforms, yeah, what it's it's one shot, and what he sort of does is he contorts and convulses his face into an expression that resembles what the hide makeup looks like. And then, you're right, then they cut to a close-up, and okay, now they've actually applied the makeup. But the makeup's still similar enough to his face that it sort of matches the long shot where he's just contorted his face. But every time he transforms, they make the makeup more and more and more so that as you go on, you they have to start doing the dissolves and stuff to actually give it uh, give the transformation. Yeah. I have to say, I, I did really like the makeup and everything that they were doing for Hyde, except the... I, I don't know if he always had this, but towards the end, he had a microcephaly kind of shaped head. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, like, ableism in there, but, like, where, like this evil character is like that. I mean, that's a bit inherent with the evil character has the looks to go with that evil personality. It's, it's, it's always tough if, you know, because Jekyll and Hyde is always an opportunity for makeup artists to do something cool and fun, but it's, like, hard because you're having to decide, like, what features denote evil, and it can get, like, that can get very tricky real quick. Yeah. So I think, like, because you couldn't quite see the microcephaly-shaped head, you never really saw it because he was wearing a, a, a hat, and I think he looked fine without it. I don't think... It was it was weird and distracting. Like, when he took his hat off and the, he's got this elongated, pointed head underneath, I, like, sort of was taken aback and went, oh, that's weird. Yeah, I think it would have worked better if, it, if he didn't have it. So to describe kind of what his makeup looked like, to me it sort of looked like everything about him was, like, elongated. Yeah. Like, he had longer fingers and he had, like, a longer chin and so I, I wonder if just the pointy head was supposed to just be like this elongated skull uh, so that he's sort of elongated overall. And he's got longer stringy hair and his nose is is longer and stuff. It's all just this very thin, elongated kind of look. The imagery around quote-unquote pinheads as members of circus freak shows and, and things like that was already you know quite established and famous by this time. So it's hard to know if that's intentionally a, a connection here or not. Yeah, but otherwise, I mean, like, the way he was doing his eyebrows and his cheekbones, even before they did the makeup, mm-hmm. and, like, it honestly looked like he somehow made his cheekbones go up to his eyes. Like, it was very impressive. Yeah, his performance is really good. You can see that Barrymore's clearly, like, having a blast sinking his teeth into the role of Hyde. Like, he's just kind of there as Jekyll, but, like, when he's Hyde, you can tell, like, he's really performing. He's really Mm -hmm. acting. And, I mean, it's sometimes hard for a modern audience to really get into silent film acting because it can be a little bit over the top. But, like, you can see that, like, 
to me, it really did feel like that case of, like, an actor who's known for being handsome finally getting to kind of cut loose a little bit with something and getting to do so. Yeah. I did like his kind of Edgar Allan Poe look as Jekyll. The way his hair was shaped, and, like, it's probably just because of, like, the thick, thick eyeliner and, like, the very <laughs> pale face, but mm-hmm. uh, the kind of, like, sickly look because you've been working in a laboratory all day. Sure, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, right. We were summarizing the film. It's okay. So trans- we cover the transformation. From there, uh, he goes as Hyde, goes and rents a room, you know, takes Gina, who was the Italian dancer, the title card specified Italian yeah, for Yeah, we have yet another instance of Italian foreigner as lower class person It felt again. like they were trying to make her exotic right. as a result of it. Because, like, she's the dancer, she has this, like, ring um, that becomes a plot device later. Yeah, it, it felt like they were going for Italian as exotic, which is still bad, but Cable at least is not, like, dirty foreigner kind of I just I just was laughing that it was, like, Italian again, because, like, you know, as we mentioned in previous episodes, like, this keeps coming up, and it's so weird from a 2017 perspective. The introduction of this dancing hall character, like, that is this film's, like, main contribution to like the evolution of like the Jekyll Hyde lore true and they don't really do anything with her like again she's there to give him this ring that opens up and she tells a story about how uh you can keep poison in it it's it's a Lucrezia Borgia ring is what it is yeah and, like, the film shows us, as she's telling the story, it cuts to a scene from history or something where people take poison out of this ring, and it's like, did you guys just need to fill time? Like, th- why do we have this no, little thing in here? I totally agree. I think that I think that this movie has a lot of instances of padding for time. It's a ring for poison. Like, you don't need to cut back to medieval Italy to, like, explain how that works for, like, a whole scene. That's really weird. Yeah. And and I do feel like, you know, both with Gina and with Millicent, like, both love interests don't really get a lot to do in this movie. They yeah. don't contribute a lot to the story or the plot or its themes. They're mostly just there so we can, like, cut back to them every once in a while to pad time. Like, Millicent has so many scenes where you just cut back to her pining in a room for when's Jekyll gonna come for me. This movie really does feel like it wasn't quite sure how to make this uh, a feature-length film. I wonder... So, for those who don't know, the novella is in the structure of... From a, a third person, not Jekyll and Hyde? It's it's just like a first-person narrative. Oh. But it's it's a mystery novel, is really... Okay. It's, it's like, this guy's friends with Jekyll... Jekyll's friends with this, like, criminal named Hyde, and it's this guy trying to, like, figure out what the connection is. So I wonder if the cutting back to Millicent and, like, other people as well going, like, man, have you seen Jekyll lately? It's almost to give that same sense of mystery from the novel, except it doesn't work because we, (laughs) the audience, know what Jekyll's been up to. That's what I mean when I say, like, this film feels like a middle step in the evolution of this story. You don't need that stuff once we you front loaded that those are the same guy and everyone and you have to front load it like you couldn't do an adaptation that retained the mystery element anymore because we we know yeah uh, you you know a, a two year old knows who Jekyll and Hyde are 
the other thing about Gina is, you're right, she only, the only reason she's in the movie is to give him this poison ring, which he could have gotten from anywhere. So the other reason she's in the movie is just to give a little bit of, like, sex appeal. Yeah. I have to admit, <laughs> I kind of found it shocking, because, like, I'm not used to women in movies of this time period having bodies accentuated the ways that, like, having, she has, you know, she's basically wearing, like, a shawl over, like, a bodice. Yeah. And, you know, and her cleavage and her, that it's very, like, emphasized and apparent. And, like, that's not something I'm used to seeing with women from films of this vintage. So I, I have to admit it was kind of shocking. Mm-hmm. But, you know, whereas the Frederick March film takes that dancing hall character and turns her into a whole subplot that motivates all these things, this movie, it's like Jekyll shows up, he meets her, he gets the poison ring from her, he takes her back to his place, and then he kicks her out. The end. Yeah. I mean, like, it's... You can imply a lot of, like, the things that Frederick March's version is explicit about. Mm. But again, it's... But it's not really there. Yeah. So eventually... Uh... <laughs> yeah, what... what it, Pretty much. Like, this movie... I feel like you could cut out, like, the, the middle third of this movie yeah. and not lose anything. Uh, so eventually Hyde uh, runs over this kid uh, to clarify, literally runs, not like driving a car and hits a kid, but like runs over and like knocks over a kid and then like there's a shot of him pushing his foot into the dude's back, like this kid's back. And it's just like, what are you doing? Why? What are you doing? I, this is there because it's in the book. Yeah. But like... I feel like every adaptation we've seen that keeps this incident does a really poor job of it because it's really hard to just, like, film someone, like, bumping into a kid and then just, like, running over them. Yeah. Like, literally just walking over them. Because, like, you can't really, like, you can't really film that. So they always have to, like, cut around it and it always ends up looking really weird and unintentionally comedic, right? Yeah. Oh, it's right at the same time that so George and uh, one of Jekyll's other friends are, like, coming by to check on Jekyll. And um, Hyde has, like, a check written from Jekyll to give to the parent of the kid. And Jekyll's friends are like, this is... Jekyll's writing, like, what are you doing? Uh, and he's like, don't worry about it. And, like, walks off. But I think that starts the, for lack of a better word, the investigation on the part of the friends to be like, who's this Hyde character? Like, what is his relationship to Jekyll? So there is something there, at least, that, like, motivates sort of the plot. Yeah, it's just that incident is an hour in. Yeah, that's way too late. Yeah. And so eventually, like, what happens is Millicent who spends the entire movie just sitting in a drawing room. Finally, her dad's like, I'm going to go over to Jekyll's place and give him a piece of my mind. So, like, he comes over to Jekyll's place and he's like, for one thing, you're neglecting my daughter. And for another thing, like, why are you friends with this Hyde guy? Like, he's a real piece of shit. And Jekyll basically gives him the, like, I learned it from watching you speech from... From that, Uh, like, drug PSA. Uh, yeah, it's like, you're the one that told me to indulge myself, and this is all because of you. And then, like, that 
rage transforms Jekyll into Hyde without the use of the potion. And it's, he, like, beats the shit at a dude. It's hilarious because, like, I was yelling those things and then Jekyll would yell those things. Because I was like, because they're trying to have Sir George be all, you know, you can't be this horrible bad person. That means that you're not good enough for my daughter. And I was sitting there watching going, you were the guy who told him to do these things. And immediately after, Jekyll's like, you were the guy who told me to do these <laughs> things. And so at least the movie, like, it recognizes that Sir George is like a weird hypocritical character but yes yeah, so then he like involuntarily hulks out into hide right in front of dude's eyes and comes at him and murders him yeah and then like the movie just keeps going on about like <laughs> hide's disappeared but jekyll's still around but he's still neglecting millicent the, and the then I- like ugh. the idea is supposed to be that he's run out of the materials he yeah. needs to make the drug so that he can't he can't control the transformations anymore, so he's locked himself in the laboratory. There is a whole sequence that's like this from the book where he sends out like a note to one of his friends saying, like, bring me all this stuff uh, so that I can make more of the drug. But instead, in this version, he tells his butler to do that, and his butler can't find any of it. And eventually Millicent just shows up. Well, the butler goes off to get Millicent because oh, he's like, right. oh, well, maybe this will cheer him up. And at the same time, like, the butler sends some of the other house people, house personnel, to go fetch house servants to go get Jekyll's friends. He's like, oh, well, maybe they'll cheer him up. But Millicent arrives first. Uh, She goes to see Jekyll, and Jekyll's like, no, if you love me, you'll go away. He couldn't be more of a Byronic guy. (laughs) And then he transforms. And, like, it it was strange, because I didn't realize until the end of, of this sequence, I guess, um, but he transforms into Hyde, and we see him kind of, like, eating away at his hands. Like, his hands have transformed, and his face isn't quite all there yet. And then he turns into Hyde, and he brings M- Millicent in, and is being, like, really gross and overly touchy with her. Yeah, he's, he's creeping on her. Yeah, and, like, she knows that Hyde is the one who killed her dad, so yes. there's, like, an extra level of, like, creepy, and, like, why she would be so scared. And then he, like, starts kind of convulsing. Uh, She runs out just in time for Jekyll's friends to come in. And one of his closest friends comes into the laboratory and sees Hyde has died and then transforms back into Jekyll. And that's when we get the close-up of the Italian poison ring, which is open with no more poison in it. So him kind of, like, clawing and biting at his hands was him, like, taking the poison before Hyde hurt Millicent. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time, I was like, I don't know what's going on. Right. And then, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. And then Jekyll's friend, to comfort Millicent, just says, like, I guess Hyde killed Jekyll and is on the loose again. Yeah. That's like, how he... Ex- that would not scar someone for life. Right. Like, that's his way of explaining Jekyll being dead, is, like, Hyde killed Jekyll, which, like, I feel like they were trying to go with that, like, King Kong ending of, like, it was beauty killed the beast, or, like, he's trying to be ironic, like, it's trying to work on a couple levels, him saying that, you know what I mean? But... It has to work at least on the literal <sighs> level in order for you to go deeper. Well, no, it, it does work on, like, I, well, really Jekyll killed Hyde, but it, it's not important. <laughs> <laughs> the, the the point is that this is a woman whose dad and lover were both killed by this Hyde guy who now will, like, be free forever as far as she's concerned. Like, that's... It's not good. Yeah, that's not what you do. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, I get, like, Millicent is supposed to be a pure and innocent. Like, it's explicitly stated, like, despite her dad being a son of a bitch, he's raised this daughter to be, like, in pure innocence... 
And that maybe that's why they're like, well, we can't tell her because this will just like right. destroy her worldview. And it's like telling someone the truth is probably the better way to go. Yeah, but like these are like Victorian era old white haired men. So like it makes sense that they have a condescending and uh, patriarchal treatment of this woman. I'm still going to critique it. Sure. <laughs> um, speaking of her dad, like... The fact that the movie basically says, like, yeah, this guy is a son of a bitch. Like, he's, what they say is he's a man of the world, which explicitly is, like, used as a euphemism to say, like, he's a son of a bitch. And they try to say that, like, that's the reason why he's been such a good dad, because, like, but basically because he's a horrible guy, he knows what horrible guys are like, and therefore has been able to protect her from horrible guys, which, like, that is some, that is some up-your-own-ass reasoning right there. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's the plot. Yeah. What did you like about this movie, Sarah? Uh, I mean, Barrymore was good. The cinematography was really neat. Yeah, there was some really good lighting throughout. Some yeah. good use of, like, chiaroscuro lighting throughout. Uh, explain what chiaroscuro is for folks. Uh, so it's it's sort of use of light and shadow. It's It's painting with light. So, the you know, if you see movies where... There's the one shaft of light coming through the window, and the rest of the scene is dark with these dark black shadows and stuff. That's chiaroscuro. It's, it, once you do it, it, chiaroscuro is a painting term. Once you do it in film, you're kind of getting into film noir territory. Mm. But, uh, yeah, really good lighting throughout. And for most of the time that we've been ha like watching these movies, um, there have been some variations on this, but a lot of the setups for the shots have been like a stage play. Mm -hmm. And this does... This movie does have that, but we kept having different sort of things. Like, we had these weird close-ups of what Jekyll was looking at in the microscopes, like these weird little buggy oh, yeah, microbes. Yeah. When Jekyll's, like, locked himself in, in, like, the very last part of the film, and the butler goes up to knock and say, like, hey, I don't have your medicine or whatever, um, rather than just, like, the standard, like, cameras in the courtyard, and we pan over as, like, dude walks over, the cameras where the doors and, like, Butler's walking up, mm -hmm. and then same, like, the next shot is, like, we see the shadow of the butler coming towards, and we're, like, looking at the door. So there have been, like, some really neat shots like that For that me, the, the most effective shots in the film were, um, the most effective scenes in the film, really, were uh, Jekyll and Hyde's confrontations with Sir George and with Millicent. Um, specifically, like, thinking of the shot, you know, we're almost Sir George's point of view, looking right at Jekyll and he changes to Hyde right in front of you and then those shots of in both scenes of Hyde coming closer and closer directly to the camera mm. uh, and kind of with that leering face and then the reverse shots of like Sir George or Millicent backing away in horror um, those those were terrific those two scenes I mean for me were like those are the scary scenes those are the scenes that like you know get you feared there was also that bizarre spider hide dream sequence oh yeah so at one point in the film they're trying to talk about how how jekyll can't control his um transformations anymore and, and the point of the scene is he goes to bed as jekyll and wakes up as hide but while he's sleeping as jekyll hide shows up in a spider suit uh, like not probably. like a Spider Man's like like he's a like, he's a tarantula. It's a tarantula with with Hyde's face. Yeah, like picture like dog sized spider <laughs> suit, <laughs> and like so the technique is like a double exposure, and you see Jekyll lying in bed with like his covers tucked up to his chin, all 
all cozy, and then like this weird, and you can tell that it's Hyde because you can see Hyde's face in like the spider's head, and like it's a, it, it's a little spoopy. It's Spider Hyde. <laughs> it's, it's, and yeah, he just crawls across the floor and crawls up onto the bed on top of Jekyll, and then fades away and then hides Jekyll, or, and then... Jekyll's Hyde. Yeah. Uh, it does look like Hyde Spider, Spider Hyde, uh, kind of bites Jekyll's neck as he, like, settles in, and then that's when Jekyll becomes Hyde. Speaking of neck biting... Oh, yeah. <laughs> when, when Hyde has killed... Uh, Sir George, uh, fiancé's dad, he tackles him to the ground in like a, whoa, they both just did face plants on the lawn yeah. kind of tackle. And then is like biting his neck? Yeah, like I, I he's kept... like an animal attacking him. And so, yeah, he's like gnawing at his neck and then he gets up and then like beats him with the, the stick like several times and the music's going with it. And... Yeah, I mean... I think in all the versions, he kills Carew by beating him with the cane. But yeah. certainly the, like... neck bitey. was That was weird. Yeah, I like I really like Barrymore. Uh, he's really good. The problem is, like, he's just not given enough to do. Like, I feel like that's for all the characters. That's the thing, yeah. Like, this whole movie, like, it's got some solid performances, but, like, it's, it's not focused. Like, the movie has a lack of focus and motivation. It, a lot of the times it just feels like things are happening, but there's not a lot of, like, a through line yeah. to what's happening. There's just not a lot of meat on these bones. I think everyone knew the story coming in, and so really the allure was seeing John Barrymore in this role. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, this version was, I guess, very well received. It was critically acclaimed. It was very financially successful. But, like, it just doesn't have... It's telling you the story of Jekyll and Hyde, but it doesn't have anything to say about it. Yeah. Uh, it's worth seeing for Barrymore's performance, but there's better versions of Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah. It's really too bad because, like, I do feel like everyone... Like, no one was bad. No. You know, it wasn't like like King Baggett's weird jumping at people. You I, know? Like, it, it, people were doing a good job. It was just uninteresting. I do find it interesting that like all of the hides that we've had so far to varying degrees have decided to like hunch over yeah in their performances and kind of be small the novel doesn't really describe Hyde's appearance the only real description it gives of him is that he's of a very slight build mm. um and it was the implication was that Stevenson was trying to say that like because Hyde is a part of Jekyll that has been like externalized just his like evil it's just all of Jekyll's evil impulses as a separate being, Hyde is physically smaller than Jekyll because of that. All of the actors so far have done this, of like this crouching over kind of hunched thing. Not all of them to King Baggett's Gollum extreme. But. Yeah. I would just really like to have a Jekyll and Hyde adaptation that doesn't equate good with looks and evil with looks. Right. You know, yeah, the, the, like, the good beauty and evil ugliness dichotomy. Yeah, like Dorian Gray. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that's why I really like Dorian Gray. Picture yeah. of Dorian Gray. Yeah. Because, like, and I'm not saying, like, oh, how deep it would be for <laughs> Jekyll to be kind of, like, not a like not conventionally attractive, but he's a nice guy. Right. And then Hyde to be, like... Suave. Suave, but an at, like, Gaston. Right. He's an ass. <laughs> uh... And, yeah, because, like, that's not what I would want either. Just, like, two normal-looking people. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, in the original novella, uh, Jekyll's described as a large, smooth-faced man of about 50. And then the novel's version of Hyde is described as being smaller, of slight build, thinner, and younger. Younger because he hasn't had as much time to develop? Yeah. To experience things? I think also maybe there's a thing of, you know, that he's indulging in a younger man's pleasures or things like that, mm. perhaps. I mean, if Jekyll's old, like 50, mm-hmm. and Hyde is like, we'll say 30, mm-hmm. I would understand the allure of changing into this kind of person more. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, I do agree with the idea, like I'm thinking of Frederick March here, but the idea of Jekyll being younger. Like, I would say Frederick March looks around 30. John Barrymore here looks maybe 35. He's 40. He's he's 38 in this film. Okay. Uh, so the youngest I would put him is 35. You know, you would need to have some kind of, like, folly of youth to think, like, you're invincible. Right. So you can take this potion and not have any consequences. The novel's version is basically a man going through a midlife crisis who's been respectable all his life and wanting to have the opportunity to you know, play around, as it were, but can't. So he creates this younger persona for himself. It's also worth saying, even though we've been talking this whole episode, that nobody in 1920 probably would have said Jekyll. Oh yeah, it's Jekyll. Yeah, Jekyll is the pronunciation from the UK, uh, where Robert Louis Stevenson was from. It's a Scottish last name. It's also the way it's said in the Frederick March version, which is the first sound version. It's not until you get to the 40s, Hollywood American versions uh, that you start getting Jekyll, uh, which is really just the result of Spencer Tracy playing the <laughs> role and saying it in his Spencer Tracy voice. I mean, we really could have tried, but I've been having a hard enough time not saying heckle and jide. <laughs> so <laughs> I just forgot. I just plum forgot. Uh, so do we want to rank this movie? Sure. Okay. I will just to give us a, a starting point. Mm-hmm. The 1912 Jekyll and Hyde uh, with James Cruz, uh, the shorter version, uh, is sitting at number six on the list. The King Baggett version is sitting at number eight. And between them is the Avenging Conscience. Ooh. What's, what's above the Jekyll and Hyde uh, with Cruz? So above that, sitting at number five on the list, is the Thomas Edison Frankenstein. Hmm. I feel like this could go below that Frankenstein. Yeah, um, right above that Frankenstein is Sealed Room. So the reason I'm thinking below Frankenstein Mm -hmm. is comparing special effects, Frankenstein is way better than this. (laughs) Like, all the props. It's a ten-year difference. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, Like, all all the kudos to John Barrymore, but that that's how I feel. But also as, like, adapting a thing... Um, how tight things were. I mean, like, the lengths are quite different. Mm-hmm. But I would put this Jekyll and Hyde above the others, mm-hmm. but I would put it below Frankenstein. So I could put it there. That's probably about as low as I would put it. Yeah. Uh, the highest I would probably put it would be above Sealed Room and below Eerie Tales, which is what we have at number three. Um, that's That's probably the highest I would put it. So really, for me, it's... I, I can sort of see what you're saying, that it's not as good as that Frankenstein, but on the flip side, I kind of feel like it's better than Sealed Room, which yeah. somehow ended up above that Frankenstein I on our th- list. I think it's because 
it was the horror of seeing these two people suffocate. Right. right. Um, whereas Frankenstein was like the monster coming after the girl. Right. Sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We liked the we liked the horror in Sealed Room better. So here, like to me, like I said, I think the only scenes the scenes that were really effectively horrific in this film were. The scene where he's coming right at George Carew, and the scene where he's coming right at Millicent and she's backing away, like, those two scenes are really scary. The rest of the movie, not really as much, to be honest. Like, And you have he, to get through so much. Yeah, and even his interactions with Gina, the dancing girl, like, aren't, not enough is really done there. Yeah. Like, the best stuff in this movie is in the last half hour of an hour and a half movie. We could compromise and put it below sealed room, but above Frankenstein. Hmm. But, I mean, like... You know, no, I I think I'm kind of with you. I think I'm kind of with putting it below Frankenstein. Yeah? I, I mean, that Frankenstein is, is real weird. But I do kind of like it because I, I have an affection for it just because it's, like, so different from all the Frankensteins that end up coming after the Universal Frankenstein films. Like, the next Frankenstein that I can think of that, you know has the creation of the monster feel so alchemical is like the Kenneth Branagh one from the 90s, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, no, it's real good. And that, like, scene of the monster coming together is real good. Yeah. Okay. And, like, I... Fight Club ending. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so we're saying that John Barrymore's Frankenstein's going on to the list at number six, then. Sure. So, uh, below Frankenstein from 1910, but above Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1912. Yeah. So we now have three Jekyll and Hydes on the list. Uh, luckily, they are getting slowly better. I mean, that's that's always good. You always want to see improvements. Right. Okay, cool. Uh, so that's where it's going. What are we watching next week? So next week, we have a treat. Uh, we are watching Genuin de Tragedie eines Setzamenhauses. I feel like we need to learn German. So that means genuine, the tragedy of a strange house. It is a German expressionist film from later in 1920 by the same team that did Caligari. It's director Robert Vina uh, and the rest of the same behind-the-scenes crew. Uh, not the same cast, although John Gatowit, who played Scapinelli in Student of Prague, features in this film. Ah. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's, the, it's the follow-up to Doc, uh, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Cool. Yeah, so that'll be up for next week. Till then, where can people find all of the screen scene stuff on the internet? Uh, so you can follow us on Twitter at underscore screen scene. Uh, you can also find us on SoundCloud and on iTunes. We would love it if you would subscribe and leave us a review. And you can also find our list on Tumblr at screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. From there, you can submit an appeal if you're really feeling John Barrymore deserves a bit more. Happy to hear it. Uh, you, so you can submit an appeal through Tumblr, or you can email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. All right, so till next week, everybody. Stay creepy, creatures of the night. Bye. <laughs>